Welcome to the StoryGrid Writer's Room Podcast with Valerie Francis and Leslie Watts. This show is all about getting writers writing. There's a story inside of you that's trying to get out, and even though you love this stuff, sometimes it feels like you're banging your head against the wall. Well, the StoryGrid method is like a decoder ring, and it will help you crack any story you can dream up. The hardest part is knowing where to start, but that's what we're here for. We've been where you are now, and we can help. Here on the show, we'll give you a practical approach to the StoryGrid method so that you can put it to work. If you want to crack the story code, roll up your sleeves, and let's get started. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 3 of the StoryGrid Writer's Room Podcast. My name is Leslie Watts, and I'm a StoryGrid certified editor, and I help fiction and nonfiction writers craft epic stories that matter. And my name is Valerie Francis. I'm also a StoryGrid certified editor, and I'm a writer, and I specialize in stories by, for, and about women. So we're focusing on scenes this season because scenes are the basic building blocks of story. To be able to write a story that works, you must be able to write a scene that works. Now this week we're studying I Stand Here Ironing, which is a short story by Tilly Olson. And as we mentioned, we're drawing on stories already discussed in the StoryGrid universe. And this is one that was used in Ground Your Craft. So I Stand Here Ironing is an example of a status story. There's a lot of S's in the podcast today, <laughs> Valerie. <laughs> I, I could see from the summary that that is not going to end. So here's a brief <laughs> overview of the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff of this short story. So someone from school contacts the mother to discuss how best to help her daughter, Emily. Now, while ironing, the mother reviews Emily's life to decide what she should do. The mother concludes that the best she can do is let Emily know she's fine, just as she is. Okay, so let's get into the scene type. Now we have a short story again. So this is serving all of the obligatory moments and establishing all of the conventions. It's all in one. But what kind of scene is this, Valerie? Well, for those of you who are in Ground Your Craft, we'll know that Sean has identified it uh, as the rise and fall event in a in a status story. Oh, I'm already getting tangled up in the S's, Leslie. This is going to be interesting. <laughs> um, I, no, I don't argue with what Sean has said, but uh, I have an additional take on it. I identified immediately with the mother in the story, and I saw it as a scene in which the mother is kind of doing a mea culpa. She knows she hasn't done a great job of raising her daughter, Emily, but she also knows that she did her best. She was left with a very young child, her, the father, or I don't know if it was her husband, but the, the father anyway, Emily's father has left, has abandoned them. Right. And 
so she's, she's doing what she can to raise this child. And now that Emily is 19, she's looking back over the way she has raised Emily and she knows there are deficiencies and she feels heartbroken. I was going to say guilty. I don't think it's guilt. I think it's heartbreak that she yeah. could have done more for her child. Right. And I think that that's both, right? It's about her making the decision. That's what's happening on the surface. But underneath that, of course, she's doing this accounting, right? And, and though, yes, exactly as you say, she finds that she came up short, but she also understand that, and understands that given the circumstances, she did the best she could. So this works really well, I think, in the context of a status story because it's all about what we're willing to sacrifice, what we're willing to do to gain respect, usually third-party respect, right? And how we want to approach life. Do we want to pursue someone else's definition of success or are we going for an internal definition? So What's really interesting, I think one of the fun things about this scene is that we've got three onstage characters, which is the mother, who's the narrator, we've got Emily, and then we've got the person who's making the request. Oh, why don't you come in and we'll talk about how we can help Emily. And two of those characters are unnamed. And then we've got loads of offstage characters because of the mother going through Emily's history. And what I like about this, there are some stories that you, I mean, you're, appreciate the, you're appreciating them while you're reading them, but when you finish it and you reflect back, you start to see just how well it was crafted. For example, if you hadn't said, Leslie, that two of the char characters, two of the three characters are unnamed, most people would never notice that. The first time this occurred to me that you could actually not name your character was when I read uh, The Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman. That was the first book I read after reading The Story Grid, What Good Editors Know. So it was the first book I tried to analyze. So I read it all the way through first. And then I took out my Story Grid book and tried to analyze it. And it was only then when I sat down to study the story that I realized the narrator is not named. I, I mean, that's fancy footwork, Leslie. <laughs> is <laughs> right because it's you you don't really miss it and the point is there are these two adults who are making decisions for Emily and like what a great idea to leave them nameless it's about Emily and that's of course the conclusion that her mother comes to and the other conclusion that her mother comes to is Emily in this story is 19. So you have someone who is trying to help her in good faith, I think. Sure. And Emily's 19. Emily's mother was 19 when Emily was born. So the mom is looking at Emily as an adult, which she is at 19, and a young adult, and saying, you know what? She's just fine. When you consider the upbringing she's had, she has found her niche. She is finally doing well. She's smiling and she's happy. She's got something. Leave her alone. I just think it's beautiful. It is beautiful. It is, you know, especially in this era of 
hyper-involved parents who are, you know, even sometimes breaking the law to attain status for their children. It's really, it's a good, a good story for us to be hearing right now. So the power dynamic in the scene is really important, especially when we're looking at scene types. And here we have the person from school. To me, at the beginning of the scene, it really feels like she's in the power position. I am here, benevolent person, offering to you and your daughter to help her out. So naturally, you want to take me up on that. But in the end, the mother and Emily, well, the Emily, through her mother, regains agency and control over her choices because she says, mm, no, no thanks, right? And so you made a really good point that each of the main characters has an idea of what's best for Emily. And I think really most, they all do genuinely want what's best for her, but not everybody knows what's best for Emily. Emily knows what's best for Emily. So I really like that. Yeah, the power at the beginning, the person from the institution, from the school, has a firm belief that they are the authority figure and that the power rests with them. And they can't understand why the mom isn't calling them back to, to help. And part of me, now maybe it's because I'm a mom that this resonated with me so deeply. And my, my kids are hardly kids anymore. They're 17 and 21, <laughs> right? So they're sort of in the range of Emily here. So maybe that's why I, I had such a visceral reaction to I stand here ironing. But I mean, we get this even today with the authority figure coming in, the school all the way up through, right? But even in high school, the authority figure coming in and saying, we know what's best for the kid. And when parents push back and say, maybe the kid knows what's best for the kid, especially they're not five, right? They're young adults. And if they make, if they make a decision and it turns out to be the wrong one, then it's their decision and, and they will learn, you know? So I just, I love this story. I really do. And it is, it is so heartbreaking. It is so, I can see, I can see the mom ironing. And thinking through all of this 19 years of history with her daughter as she methodically, mundanely irons yet another piece of clothing, right? Yes. Beautiful yes. stuff. So that's our exploration of the scene type. And when we analyze the scene, we answer the four story event questions and identify the five commandments of storytelling. So, of course, these are covered in detail in StoryGrid 101, which is available as a free download on the StoryGrid website. So, Valerie, what's the story event here? What are, how are you breaking this down? So, as you say, there's four questions. The first one is, what are the characters literally doing? And oftentimes, this sounds like a trick question. It did to me anyway when we learned it. Because <laughs> Sean doesn't ask you a question that's easy ever, like ever. <laughs> so in our certification training, when he would say, what are the characters literally doing? In my mind, I was thinking, what's the catch? <laughs> what's the catch? What do you mean? What are they literally? But it is simply that. 
what are they literally doing? And in this case, the mother is literally ironing Emily's dress. And an easy way to think about this is all of this comes from uh, the actor's world. So if, if you've ever acted or you know someone who's acted or if you've listened to interviews with actors, the question is, what do I do with my hands? What do I do with my hands? Right? So to me, this question is, what are they doing with their hands? <laughs> right? When you're on stage or on screen, you physically have to be doing something. So what is that? The second question is, what is the essential tactic of the characters? That is, what macro behaviors are they employing that are linked to a universal human value? So what's, we know what they're doing physically, we can see that, but what's really going on here in the scene? And my take on it is that um, the mother is trying to convince the person who has asked her to intervene to leave her daughter alone, just to like, let Emily be. Right. I have a slightly different take on this because to me it feels like she's trying to decide what to do. So she's kind of going back and forth, like the motion of the iron, uh, which is really lovely. Um, but it's there, you know, both things are clearly in here. And I think it's just a different, a slightly different interpretation. Which is what well-written stories lend themselves to, right? Indeed. Indeed. There's, I mean, this is a good place to talk about this, Leslie. I know when I'm working with writers, when we do Q&As in the various uh, StoryGrid courses, there's always a desire to get an A in StoryGrid, to find the answer. What's the right answer? Right. And the more you learn about story theory, the more stories that you study, you realize there isn't one right answer. Sometimes there is. Sometimes a, a story is clearly an action story. Like the global genre is very clear to see. Other times it's, as Sean says, squishy because really well-written stories lend themselves to multiple interpretations. So it's not about getting an A in story grid. It's not about finding the one exact answer. This is an art. And if it's done really well, there can be different points of view. And certainly on the round table, we had loads of different <laughs> points of views. <laughs> and we yes. all learned from them. Exactly. Right? Yes. Seeing a different perspective, a different take on a story is so valuable. Absolutely. So the third question, what universal human values have changed for one or more characters in the scene? And then which one of those value changes is the most important and should therefore be included on the story grid spreadsheet? All right. If we look at this as a status sentimental story for Emily, which is what Sean does in the Ground Your Craft, so I don't want to confuse any Ground Your Craft students here, the value shifts from unknown to known because she was, she was sort of a nobody as a young child with you know, no friends and all that kind of stuff. Now at 19, she's coming into her own. She's discovered comedy and she's really good at it. So she's unknown to known or unpopular to popular or rejected to accepted, something like that. If we see this as a status pathetic story for the mom, and that's how I see it, I think the value shift there is more subtle. The mother is moving from someone who's trying to create a good life for her daughter to someone, did I say that right? <laughs> I'm not sure if I said that right. The mother is trying, is moving from someone who has been trying to create a good life for her daughter to someone who has accepted that she's failed 
and that's a jagged pill to swallow. She's, yeah. she's accepted and she, that she hasn't done a great job, and she's very proud of her daughter. She is owning the fact that her best wasn't quite good enough, but that Emily seems to be doing okay anyway. She seems to have finally landed on her feet. What do you think about that, Leslie? I think that's really interesting because it reminds me of in the tipping point, the way Malcolm Gladwell talks about how parents don't actually have that much influence with their teenager, you know, their teen and and young adult children. And so that's, I think, another way to look at this is she's accepting she doesn't have that much influence anyway. All this stuff went wrong. She's still doing okay. I mean, like she's found her gift and I didn't really have that much to do with that. So maybe she's got it figured out. Maybe she can make her own decisions about her priorities and and stuff. So I don't know how you would boil that down into uh, two words, but it's, again, it's just a, you know, slightly different understanding, but all of this is in there. And that change from, oh my gosh, what do I do? should I listen to this authority figure or should I listen to my daughter and follow her lead is another way of looking at it. The fourth question then is what is the story event that sums up the scenes on the ground actions, essential tactics and value change? This is the story event that will enter on the spreadsheet, that wonderful that wonderful, tedious spreadsheet. <laughs> uh, here's how I have stated the story event for I Stand Here Ironing. A mother defends and protects her daughter from a well-meaning individual who wants to help her. The mother believes that her daughter's belief in herself and hope for the future is more important than whatever help this third party can give. Amen. Don't you just want to say Amen. <laughs> I want to say, yay, mom, good job. (laughs) Yeah, yes, absolutely. So from the story event, we go into the five commandments of storytelling, and I'll just run through the highlights quickly. So in the inciting instant, the narrator, mother, receives a request to come to school to talk about her daughter who needs help. And she goes through the process of reviewing her history with her daughter and then comes to the turning point progressive complication, which is an action. Emily wins first place, but it's also a revelation that being somebody has left her as imprisoned as her anonymity. The crisis this raises is, does the mother agree to discuss her daughter's situation or not? The climax, the mother declines, concluding that Emily will find her own way. And the resolution really is, the mother concludes, this is a step in allowing her daughter to become who she is naturally, rather than conforming to someone else's standard. Oh, if we could only bottle that up and give that to our kids, right, Valerie? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Oh, okay, so... That's the basic analysis. Now we want to talk about what's special about this scene, what's really interesting to us, what hap- what does the author do really well? Valerie, what's your uh, 
What's your take on this? I think that I Stand Here Ironing is a beautiful example of a well-crafted story that lends itself to multiple interpretations. I mean, on the round table, we got this all the time. I am confident that we will get this comment again many times on the Writer's Room podcast. And that is, how come you're differing? Surely there's only one answer. And I mean, I started to talk about this a minute ago, and I'll just go into more detail here. When we're writing a story, we've got to be very clear in our choices and, and very strategic in our choices. We're going to pick one global genre. There can be elements of many genres. There can be a secondary genre. There can be an external and an internal genre, but you're going to have one global genre. So in this case, it's a status story, or we're seeing it as a status story, okay? As the writer, you know exactly what kind of story you want to tell. Like I'm writing a psychological thriller. That is my global uh, genre here. So all of the decisions that I make are going to flow from that genre choice. So while I'm in my writer's room, working away on my story, I'm being very deliberate in all my choices. And all the arrows in my story are pointing to psychological thriller. All my 20 core scenes will turn on that value. Um, everything. The wants and needs, the, the point of view and narrative, everything is pointing toward and supporting my global genre choice. That's great. That works wonderfully while I'm in my writer's room. Here's the thing we have to understand as writers, whether it's a short story or novella or novel or screenplay, whatever it is we're writing. Once that manuscript is locked and it goes to the publisher, whether you're self-publishing or, or a third party is publishing, it's not yours anymore. It now belongs to your reader. And your reader is going to take from it what he or she wants, depending on their experiences in life and their point of view. Like for example, with I Stand Here Ironing, I see something in it that Sean didn't pick up on because I'm a mom, <laughs> right? And I have a daughter who's 17. I'm a single mom. So it's just like the narrator in this story. So I can really resonate with a lot of things in the story. You, you, you do your best, but you wonder then if your best was good enough and you just kind of have to wait and see what your child blossoms into <laughs> or doesn't blossom into, whatever the case may be. Mine are both blossoming. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, so I latched onto that and I saw the status story from the mom's point of view. Sean saw the status story from the daughter's point of view. And I can absolutely see where he's coming from. I have no argument with his interpretation of it. But I read the story before I heard Sean's analysis of it. So I remember that really catching me off guard, thinking, oh, oh, really? You're looking at it from Emily's point of view? Never occurred to me to look at it from Emily's point of view. I just zeroed right in on the mom. So once your story leaves your hands, it's not yours anymore. So whatever your intention was, it kind of doesn't matter. <laughs> right? right? I mean, it, it matters because it's your, your book, your story, you're always going to remember. But it's not our job to tell our readers what to think or how to feel or what to take from our stories. Right. 
it's our job to present the story and allow the readers to take from it what they need to take from it and what they, they see in it. And with a really well-written story, if someone reads it today and then reads it in 10 years' time, they're going to see a, a different thing in the story, because, not because the story changed, but because they have changed. I hope that makes sense. Absolutely. And just to be clear, you're not giving people carte blanche to muddle their genres. You have to be crystal clear about what, about your intention. And when you, the really cool thing is that when you really focus on the global genre, these other pieces come in and that lends the universality that specificity is what makes it universal and that so that even if someone's not a mom they can still get this but it they, what they get from it might be a little bit different right you make an excellent point there thank you for underlining that for me i'm not saying you can just throw whatever you want in there and and say ha huh, you can't tell me what to do well no i can't tell you what to do Here's the thing. If you're not crystal clear when you're writing it, what's going to come out in the other end is a muddled mess. Right. People are not going to have multiple interpretations of it because they're not going to understand it. Your clarity of vision as the author is what creates those multiple interpretations. Yes. Now, you know, it's funny you mentioned this because I found this story a little tricky at first to unpack it. I read it too before Sean did his analysis. Um, but once I got into it, one of the things I appreciated, as I often do, is, is a perfect combination of story and the narrative device and point of view. Here, the narrative type is technically what Wallace Hildick calls, listen while I tell you. So it's a first person, past tense narrative, as if spoken, right? Here, the intended recipient isn't hearing what the mother is saying. It's, it's as if she's rehearsing or she's having the conversation in her head, which I never do. So I can't relate to this at all. Um, but, no, I do a lot. But, so it's like she's rehearsing. So on one level, this is about a small decision, what to do about this one request. But the big picture is the mom is deciding on her approach. How am I going to have a relationship with my daughter now that she's a young woman? She's not a kid anymore. I can't tell her what to do. You know, what do I want that relationship to be based on? Something outside of us or something between us? So given that she can't change the past, how should she relate to her daughter now? And should she encourage her to pursue third-party respect or should she focus on the relationship? Now, we get a lot of backstory and history in this story that doesn't seem to move the plot forward. The key, of course, is that the mother is making sense of the past so she can make a good decision. So it's not the event so much as what the mother concludes about them. The past does not dictate the future, and you cannot control cats. I think is also away <laughs> from today, but also so that she can help Emily in this way, 
right? By encouraging her to not fall into the same trap that she did while she was raising her family. For those of you listening to the podcast, you have to check out the video of this because Leslie's cat is totally stealing this, the whole show here. <laughs> she often does. She often does. What's her name? This is Lady Gwendolyn. Okay, so Lady Gwendolyn is putting in a cameo today. <laughs> She'll send yes. us her bill later, I'm sure. <laughs> I am sure. In kibble and playtime. <laughs> That's right. Okay, so to wind up our show, we touch in with our key takeaways from the scene. Valerie, what do you have for us today? Well, it's just to reiterate, you know, everything I've just been saying. When we're writing a story, we've got to pick one genre and go with it because it informs all of the other choices that we make when we're writing. However, once we've locked that manuscript and we send it out into the world, if we've done our jobs really well, our readers will see all kinds of things in it that we didn't even know was there. And for me, when you have a global internal genre, choosing a very specific narrative situation or narrative device is even more important than when you have a very straightforward action story. So here the narrative situation is embedded within the story, and it really gives us a perfect context to present this crisis the mother faces while she's doing this mundane action. So substance and form go together perfectly. And like the other short stories that we've looked at, um, well, on this show already, in the Roundtable podcast, as they come up when we're chatting with other writers... <laughs> In a short story, everything does double and triple duty, right? So this is another reason why you can read one or two lines of this story and see multiple things in it. Why Sean can see one thing, I can see something else, you can read something else. You know, anyone listening to the show will read the story and, and see something different again. That enriches the story, it doesn't take away from the story. But Tilly Olson, I guarantee you, whatever her intent was when she was writing, she was very clear about it in her own mind. And that wraps it up for this week. Remember, if you want to become a better writer, you've got to write. And you've got to read. Why not challenge yourself this week to take one of the ideas we talked about in the episode and use it in your work? To support the show, leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. And if you're watching on YouTube, be sure to subscribe to the channel. If you want to see how we put story theory into practice, subscribe to the UnPodcast at ValerieFrancis.ca slash innercircle or writership.com. For show notes, blog posts, and information on the StoryGrid courses and guild, visit StoryGrid.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.